Hello everyone and welcome to DMH Ballard's Employment Group podcast. Uh, this week we are going to start with the first of a three-part podcast on globalisation in the world of work. Uh, regular listeners will notice that I'm not Adam Williams, uh, I'm Abigail Maino, another partner in the employment group. Uh, so we're doing a slight change to formats because today's session is all about recruiting talent from overseas and Adam uh, heads up our immigration team here at DMH Stallard, so he is going to be on the panel. Um, Globalisation is an increasingly important topic, something that's on management radar and increasingly HR are being asked to advise on and come up with creative solutions to working in, the, in a global market. Um, there's an increasingly uh, increasing tightening in the labour markets, which we've seen over the last couple of years across various levels and sectors. And the end of free movement me means immigration control is not um, is more a common issue in recruitment than it ever was. Um, all of that means uh, that employers are thinking whether they look to visa sponsorship as a solution, uh, whether compliance justifies the benefit of that, and how expensive is it to recruit from abroad. Um, and also questions around the sort of activities and responsibilities employers have if they want to benefit from recruiting in a global labour market. So with me to discuss international recruitment are, as I said, Adam Williams, head of the immigration team here at DMH Stallard. Since 2008, Adam has been assisting UK employers to get the most out of the UK immigration system. And he also regularly advises international businesses on the immigration aspects of inward investment to the UK. I'm also joined by Alexi Zoyev, Senior Associate in our immigration team. Alexi has a wealth of experience advising both businesses and individuals on the full spectrum of visa routes and associated sponsorship requirements. He regularly assists businesses with securing work visa sponsorships and individuals with the process of securing their UK immigration status. So, Adam. Can you kick us off with a quick summary of what the current state of play is when it comes to UK employers employing individuals from outside the UK? Yes, hi, Abby. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And I think probably the best way is to give a bit of a history of how we've got to where we are, certainly in the time that I've been practicing in this area. So we go way back to 2008, and that, that's when the current, what's known as points-based system came in. Um, won't go too much further back than that, but, but listeners who've been doing or operating this area for even longer will know that before that we had concepts of sort of highly skilled migrant programs, work permits essentially that were much more subjective in their operations. So the beauty there was there was flexibility in the system, but the downside was the lack of certainty because you, in many ways, this is a this is an overgeneralisation, but you would put a pitch to the Home Office as to why you needed a certain person for a certain role and that it made sense. And then you would seek to get that permit approved. From 2008, as I say, we had the points-based system come in. And, look, and that was that came in within the wider aim. Obviously, it's a highly political area. But there's a wider aim of reducing net migration, which we all know even up to today is a repeating theme um, through, through politics and, and certainly the, the current incumbent Conservative government. But actually, though, it was based only loosely, but on research done on the Australian model, which is a great system um, generally, but, but particularly if you want to increase net migration, not reduce it, because it, we went from a system that was much more subjective, as I described, to one that was based on 
satisfying eligibility requirements. And what tends to happen is once people know that there's a binary set of attributes they need to demonstrate to get the visa, will you just work out a way to achieve them? So there's always been this conflict between the system we use since 2008 and the broader political ambition of reducing net migration. And that's actually been never more apparent than it is now with stats we had a week or two ago, net migration being at sort of all time high levels um, as against the desire to bring numbers down. What, what we've obviously had looming large in the last couple of years is also Brexit. So, you know, the, the points based system was very important as a mix, as part of a mix of, of uh, options for recruitment running up to um, Brexit. What's happened since since Brexit properly was implemented and we it was the ending of free movement. So suddenly not all of these people are working age. Of course, you've got about half a billion people within the EU who moved from free movement. And, you know, the examples we had back in the day where you, you know, you find a, deep, a really good candidate in Paris, you'd tell them to jump on the Eurostar and bring their French passport and you, you'd check their passport and they'd start work straight after that. To that whole block becoming subject to immigration control as well, unless they had legacy links to the UK or were a, a frontier worker. Maybe we'll touch on some of those examples later. Uh, Alexia may talk about those. Um, so suddenly the, the immigration system and immigration control became all the more important. And I suppose that's been the big recent shift. So the state of play now really is we've still got the points-based system it was changed materially, but not in a revolutionary way after 2020. Um, and it's now much more, it's looming much larger in our landscape because anyone who doesn't already have an automatic right to work and live in the UK has to be brought within it. So that's that's the, the nutshell. The other thing I just quickly say is the trend within visa sponsorship in the UK and the points-based system is towards sponsorship. Over time, the, the categories with which you might have someone come to the UK and take up a job or be self-employed without a formal visa sponsor, typically a UK-based employer, have just, they've just reduced over time and continue to reduce. So the concept of having at least one formal sponsor with a license has become much bigger. So I guess that's a big part of what we look at as a team now is looking at sponsor licensing, looking at the eligibility criteria, trying to get ourselves within those points-based routes. Yeah, that's really interesting, Adam. And I'd certainly sort of anecdotally from my own practice, I've got um, many more clients now talking about um, recruitment from from overseas and purely because of the tight labour market. Um, well, not purely, but often because of the tight labour market in the UK and where they may have looked to Europe, that then um, isn't as straightforward as, as it used to be um, following Brexit. Um, Alexi, Faced with all of that, and it seems like there's been a lot of shift um, over the last few years, how does how does a UK employer decide whether or not sponsorship um, is the best route for them? Uh, well, Abby, assuming there are no viable immigration options outside of sponsorship, employers first need to establish whether the role is eligible for sponsorship in the first place. Uh, to be eligible, the role must meet the minimum skills and salary threshold. If the role is eligible, the next question is always about the cost. Sponsoring workers can be fairly expensive, especially if someone is being sponsored on a long-term basis. 
Um, sometimes employers are also asked to cover these application fees for their company independence, which can be a considerable additional expense. Um, some job applicants are also subject to the immigration skills charge. Um, in such cases, employers have to pay around £1,000 uh, per year of sponsorship. Um, this is if they're a large company or £364 per year um, if they're a small company. Together with the other charges, which include visa processing fees and the immigration health surcharge, the cost um, can be prohibitive. First thing that I usually do for my clients is check whether the company can benefit from any exemptions. Uh, for example, some applications or some applicants could be exempt from the from the skills charge based on their age or based on their immigration history. So, for example, if they're switching from a student visa, uh, they will likely be exempt. So it could be a lot cheaper for a company to sponsor someone mm. who's already in the UK with a student status. Um, also, certain shortage occupation roles uh, are eligible to reduce uh, visa processing fees. So there are a number of things to take into account uh, in respect of costs. And then if the client is happy with the cost, then the next question is usually about the length of the process. Quite often, employers need their candidate to be able to start uh, their, their new role within a short period of time. If the company does not already have a sponsor license, the end-to-end -end process could take from a few weeks to several months. There are, of course, ways to speed up the process, uh, but these options are not available in every single case. So each scenario needs to be um, assessed individually. If the estimated timeline is acceptable to the business, then the next question is usually about the additional duties and risks associated with becoming a licensed sponsor. Uh, guess it's important to say that in the eyes of the Home Office, being able to sponsor workers is not a right, but a privilege. And the Home Office mm. expects the licensed sponsors to have a higher degree of commitment to applying the relevant uh, laws and regulations. In particular, sponsors must strictly follow the rules aimed at prevention of illegal working. So when deciding whether sponsorship is a suitable option for, for the business, prospective sponsors need to ensure that they have the capacity and the relevant HR systems in place to monitor their compliance with the relevant obligations. As long as these two things are in place, then sponsors will enjoy all the benefits of becoming of of being able to hire uh, immigration. Uh, sorry, being able to hire migrant workers. Um, when advising clients on sponsor license applications, we are able to evaluate their existing systems, identify any gaps, and uh, make mm -hmm. recommendations. And usually, with the correct guidance, uh, it is not actually that difficult for an established business to bring their HR system in line with the requirements. So I guess in summary, the key things that employers need to think about when deciding whether, sponsors, uh, whether sponsoring workers is a viable option for, for their business model uh, include cost, uh, the time it is going to take to bring a migrant worker on board, and also whether the company will be able to fulfill the additional compliance obligations associated with becoming a licensed sponsor. Yeah, thanks, Alexi. That's really, um, really helpful as an overview, because I think a lot of employers associate the sponsor license route purely with the cost. And that might be the first and principal thought they have. But actually, 
there could be some benefit in thinking longer term about the, the talent that they might need to recruit and, and looking at some of those compliance things um, and time period that it might take to be a, a licensed sponsor um, well in advance of when they need or may want to bring someone in uh, and be a, a sponsor, uh, a licensed sponsor um, is what I'm, I guess I'm hearing from you. I mean, I wonder, Adam, are there any other less obvious benefits to becoming a sponsor? other than the obvious ability to bring that key person to the UK from another country. Is there anything else that um, having that license, that sponsor status would uh, be a benefit to the business? Yeah, there, there are. I mean, I was listening to what Alexi was saying there, and I think that that's all really important. And one of the things that comes through from that discussion is I, I, when, when we're talking to organisations, I think it's important to think about just quickly before I, I, will, I will answer your question about the, the other benefits, but about the scale. You know, a, lot of, a lot of sponsors come to this, well, no, sorry, a lot of prospective sponsors come to this thinking about one individual, mm. and, and that's fine. And that, But that analysis of risk-reward and cost-benefit is different when you're looking at one individual. And I, I think we're of the view, you know, think, think about scale as well, though. Think about whether you and whether you would still want to go ahead if you were going to do this at scale, because lots of sponsors end up getting the license, bringing one individual in, and they realise that, that, that there's benefits, and they end up doing doing it a lot more. Because the thing you don't want to do is have a, have done an analysis that says, well, our system is sufficient to comfortably look after and meet our compliance duties for one sponsored individual, and in three years' time you realise you've got twenty. And you haven't had a conversation with yourselves internally about whether we're still fit for purpose. And mm. to be honest, if you've got a system that just about coats managing one sponsored migrant and you've ended up with 20, you probably don't have a system that works. So we try to look at those two things, but it links to your point because there is scope for other um, less obvious values from having the license, but they would drive the increase in the scale and volume you're doing. Um, re really around kind of employer of choice, I guess, in choice benefit and being as a, more attractive in the marketplace. And it's really about um, the local labour workforce. But I mean that in the sense, in the broader sense of people who are already in the UK. They're, they're, they're subject to immigration control, but they're already in the UK. So, for example, if you're already a visa sponsor for skilled worker visas, well, anyone who's graduate graduating or recently graduated, they might be on a student route visa or a graduate route visa, well, they immediately know and you can go to the jobs market putting out there that you are able to sponsor them in a switch to skilled worker. And that's really important for an individual because they're in a route that doesn't count towards indefinite leave whilst you're a student or graduate. And suddenly, if you see this employer with a license, they can see I've got a long term future career potentially in the UK with that sponsor. And one question that our listeners may have, um, which may be an obvious question, but may not be. Do you have to, if, when you're becoming a licensed sponsor, and it's linked to your point about um, attracting talent within the UK that might be subject to immigration controls, do you have to apply uh, to be a licensed sponsor in connection with one or more individuals that you're going to employ, or can you do it prospectively and say, I may want to engage um, individuals in the future and I'd like to become a licensed sponsor? I think... Um... That's one of the shifts. You always were able to, in theory, apply for a license if you didn't have one particular person in mind. But going back a few years, it, we tended to be advising that there is a risk that the UKBI are going to come back and go, we're not really sure we understand why you need the license. Is this just speculative? When Brexit started to happen, 
that loosened up a lot more because of course organizations could genuinely say look up until the proper brexit date we were we were employing people in europe as and when we needed we're anticipating a need post-Brexit to mm. use a sponsor license for that. And in fact, what the Home Office did, they went out and encouraged employers to think about that and not wait because they didn't want the tsunami. And they have actually got, maybe not quite a tsunami, but they have had this huge wave of sponsor license applications after Brexit with organisations who went, oh, actually now they, they, they've reacted when they felt the pinch of it. But, oh, mm. hang on, no, we can't bring that person from Madrid then. No, you need a licence. And that's Alexi's point as well about it takes, there's a lead time for licensing. Mm. So, so um that is a um, is an important point, really, that um, you can apply on the basis that we will have a need. Um, you just, I guess, Alexi, what's the, you, you probably feel this way. You're just maybe more likely to get some additional questions back from the Home Office about just understanding exactly, particularly if you're not very specific about the types of role that you are envisaging sponsoring. If you're just like, can we have a license, please? That's probably going to, at the very least, garner some extra questions from the from the home office and you probably haven't complied with the information requirements that you have to put in when you apply what do you think um, Alexi? um every time a company well every time anyone applies for a sponsor license they always need to justify uh the need for that license so whether or not they have identified a foreign worker that they would like to sponsor uh they need to submit supporting documentation uh, with their application based on that evidence, the Home Office will take a view on whether the business is likely, if, even if at the point of application they haven't identified anyone uh, to sponsor, the Home Office will take a view on whether based on the evidence the company is likely to need um, to sponsor foreign workers in the future. So for some business, especially if, it, if for example, it's a new business that, that's been set up in the UK, but it's got links to a parent company outside of the UK, then chances are that that company will need to bring people over and the Home Office will recognise that. Um, if it's a completely new company set up in the UK uh, that does not have any links to to overseas, and the Home Office may be a bit more sceptical and may want to see additional evidence. Because if it's not an established business that has been trading for a while, then um, what the Home Office does want to avoid is you know dodgy companies being set up with a view mm. to facilitating uh people coming to the uk using the sponsored route i see yeah so it, it it sort of suggests you can be a little bit proactive but you've kind of got to get your ducks in a row a little bit about um why you may need to look to a sponsored uh worker or, or, or a um, a worker that might be subject to immigration control rather than individuals who have the right to work in the UK. So perhaps, I don't know, maybe a bit of an analysis about gaps in your labour resource and, and the types of people um, worldwide that undertake those roles, whether there's a shortage in the UK, etc. Um, very interesting. So Alexi, if, if visa sponsorship isn't an option for whatever reason, what other potential routes are there for individuals to come to work in the UK? Are there any? Um, well, when I'm approached by clients who have identified a foreign worker that they would like to hire, the first thing I do is to check if there are any other cheaper or otherwise more attractive or suitable immigration routes than sponsorship. You know, for example, if the candidate is from a Commonwealth country, 
and are below a certain age, they may be eligible for a two-year youth mobility visa. Um, some other Commonwealth citizens may also be eligible for a five-year ancestry visa if one of their grandparents was born in the UK. Um, within the IT industry and the academic sectors, a global talent visa may be a good alternative to sponsorship, provided that the applicant is a leading specialist in their field or a young professional showing exceptional promise. Another interesting category that was introduced not so long ago is a high potential individual route. So graduates from some of the world's top universities uh, may be eligible for this visa. Uh, and it can be granted for up to three years, depending on the candidate's uh, degree level. Um, if the business is looking to hire an intern, on the other hand, then they may be able to use one of the existing tier five schemes. Um, each scheme has their own requirements uh, and the employer will need to get registered with the provider before they can use them. Um, to sponsor someone, but uh, when they use those external schemes, they do not need to be a licensed sponsor. So they will. Again, sorry, Alexi, are they linked to particular types of work then? Um, the organizations that run those, are they? Not necessarily. So specific or no? Some of them are. So there are many different schemes around. Um, those schemes are licensed by the Home Office to act as an overarching body. Uh, when sponsoring interns um, to undertake internships at different companies within the UK. So what happens is that the, the scheme administrator, they will obviously apply the rules and uh, ensure that all the sponsorship obligations are fulfilled. And the way they usually achieve that is by requiring the businesses to register with them and to provide them with updates and the relevant um, documents in respect of each individual. But what happens uh, is that those tier five schemes act as a sponsor, but the, the person is not working for them. They will be working for a company that is registered with the scheme. Um, so that way, the, the company that wants to hire an intern, they do not need to apply for a sponsor license in their own right. They can kind of outsource the sponsorship bit to one of those licensed um, tier five scheme operators, but it can be pretty much in any industry. So it doesn't have to be sector specific. There are sector specific schemes, but there are also schemes that cover all the industries. So as long as right. the company is able to meet the requirements, then they, they, they usually can register and use the scheme. Yeah. Probably worth, yeah. worth mentioning, Abby, two, two things around the, the scheme as well. It's some of them, with their sort of membership requirements, require the employer that wants to ultimately have the, the, the migrant to already have an, uh, a core sponsor license of their own. Um, yes. They're, they're uh, kind of using that as a way to filter out and not only let people who the UKBI have already kind of vetted in. Not all. I mean, it's, it's probably in the minority, isn't it, Alexa? The, the yeah, it's, it's the case. One, one of the schemes that comes to mind is the Law Society CF5 scheme. Yeah. That scheme is aimed at overseas lawyers that want to come to the UK uh, to gain experience or share experience. And uh, each scheme can introduce the requirements of their own. So ultimately, they need to make sure that um, they fulfill the compliance obligations. And some scheme operators um, tend to introduce more stringent requirements than the others. So, law society um, 
is one such example. Yeah, and the, and the other area is that um, through these schema arrangements, they're almost uniquely juxtaposed to the normal position, the very restrictive position under the, the main worker route, not, not temporary worker, but skilled worker route of this relationship of employer as sponsor and having control and supervision over the individual. Uh, it's important for our listeners to appreciate that these these T5 overarching schemes are juxtaposed to that. And it's important not to get the sense of that's okay, because if you become a sponsor yourself of work visas, there are very strict restrictions around you sponsoring someone and then sending them off into another organization, third party. It's got to be time bound, has to be supervised by the sponsor. Um, it's it's a, it's they're very different pictures. So that's that's part of the benefit of this one. If you need someone, but you can't do the sponsorship yourself. Um, this would be a route. What wouldn't be possible is you find another UK employer who's got a skilled worker license and they act as an employment business and they go, we can get the person mm -hmm. in, get them a skilled worker visa and you can just have them. It's really important, mm -hmm. particularly if you're the person saying that not to do it. But even if the recipient, you don't want to be found to have been taking someone on when they're sponsored by someone else in that sort of context. Mm -hmm. But it's a, it's a really good option to, to look at um, because yeah. you can avoid a lot of compliance burden. The other thing just quickly was on the employer of choice side, the HPI route, the high potential individual route that Alexia mentioned. That's like an extension of this thing about being attracted in the recruitment market because it's like a graduate route visa, but it's international. So you could go to one of, one of the big top 50 universities. Let's just pick Stanford in America. If you know there's a cohort of people with coming out of that university or have come out in the last five years with the right skills, you as a UK employer, are able to say to them, well, you can just get this visa under HPI, but we're also a sponsor. So you don't, you're not coming over for a short time and have to turn a tail and go back. You could start a career here with us. So again, as mm. a, the, that's the indirect benefit of being a skilled worker sponsor, you know, yeah. internationally doing international milk rounds effectively. Yeah. Well, it does sound like there's a lot of options um, that perhaps uh, our listeners aren't aware of. I mean, certainly some there I wasn't aware of in terms of the options um, if you're not uh, a licensed sponsor for whatever reason. Um, and the benefit, I think it just comes back to just the organisation of thinking about what you might want and when and the different options um, and the value of talking that through. Because actually, I think a lot of our listeners would think, well, we have to be a sponsor holder or that's it. But actually, there are loads of other um, potential routes in uh, to explore, which may be better for that organization um not least because it might be more cost effective but it might actually attract the type of talent that they're looking for um but if they do want to go down the sponsorship uh route adam what's the process just in outline form now um in terms of what it looks like for becoming a sponsor yeah i mean i the, the thing to just mention first is not to give people the wrong impression that it's really, really straightforward. I don't want to oversimplify this, but um, in outline, I mean, in its core stages and, and, and activities, it is it is quite straightforward to, to describe. It's the work that goes on behind these steps that's important, I guess. So we've talked about the analysis stage, which should actually talk through the things you think about as an employer about, you know, how are we looking to use the license? who would we be looking to sponsor in what roles are they eligible you do that analysis you make sure that you're committed to, to taking this this leap and if we looked at the most common route which would be skilled worker so that's under the worker categories not the temporary worker 
essentially the license application process is um, two key things. Gathering of key documents from a specified list, and you've usually got one or two mandatory types of document that the process is saying you must provide. And then you can choose, often it's two or three that you need to pick from a set of potential. Um, and that could, that's typically things like maybe a proof of your bank account, corporate UK bank account that's regulated, a PAYE registration, and things that, that demonstrate that you're a bona fide proper established employer in the UK. Um, there's the preparation of the information we touched on earlier. It's usually by way of a sporting letter around why you want a license, what sector you're in, what are your working hours arrangements, which roles would you be looking to sponsor, demonstrating that you can be trusted to be a sponsor and that you understand the things you have to show in order to, to validly sponsor someone. So that's usually the things we say once you've done the analysis. Get working on those straight away because it can take some time to get those documents together. You know, something's mm -hmm. got to come from an accountant or maybe it's from the bank. And then alongside that, there's the, the preparation of the online application form for the license, um, which if you knew all the information you needed from the outset would not take very long. Um, and it's pretty fact specific about the business, again, about its sort of sector types, about the, the size of uh, the employee base, um, the routes it wants to sponsor in. But there are some bits there that get a little bit more technical around explaining your need for undefined certificates, which are the UK-based sponsorship certificates. You know, how many do you need and why? Um, you have to fill that out. Um, and, in, and, and alongside all that process, you've got to identify some key personnel. The big important one will be the authorising officer uh, who can also act as a level one user. The level one user is the functional role on the sponsor system once, you're, once you've got your licence. But you need to have a UK-based employee or officer um, to act as essentially the face of your organisation with the Home Office, the authorising officer. They can't have certain criminal um, background, bankruptcy stuff in the background. You've got to pick someone. And that involves, of course, a discussion internally because it's not a role anyone should take on lightly. With, with Particularly with external support, you can manage the kind of um, workload that goes with it, but you need to identify those key individuals. You, that, you put the licence in, you now submit supporting documents by email once the online application's gone in and you've paid your fee. And then you're either, as Alexi touched on earlier, you're trying to get a fast track place and pay £500 to get your license application decided within a couple of weeks. Uh, or you're waiting potentially eight is the standard servicing um, turnaround time, but maybe more to get that license decision back. Um, and what can happen during that waiting period, it could happen whether you get a fast track uh, place or not is you you could get no further contact the next thing you hear is a letter going congratulations you've um, been granted a license here's your details and access arrangements or you could get a request for information it usually comes in a table form where they're saying we want you to give us this this and this more information or this requires more resource from the home office so it's less common overall you could get a visit um clearly home office want to have a sense that they're checking and making sure that applications aren't made from completely fictitious organisations. They have in the past gone to do a visit and knocked on the door of the address that was given and found it. it's a news agents and the people at the news agents have no idea what the company name is they're talking about. And they realise that this was an attempt to create illegal migration through a fake employer that doesn't exist in that sector, doesn't have that. So you can get a visit and those visits could happen after you've had the licence as well, of course. But you go through that process um, and if successful, you're given a four year 
license. That's probably it in a nutshell. Um, and do and do employers get if they are going to get a home office visit? Is there any warning of that? Do they have to give warning? They don't have they... to. All, I mean, almost always. I mean, this is shared experience within the team, so Alexi can give his view as well. But they don't have to. But almost always, you would get some warning. The time they wouldn't is if they usually if they suspect that there is illegal working and they need to effectively raid the mm. organisation, um, which would be very unusual in a pre-license if you know what I mean you've applied for yeah. a license because if you're in sort of dawn rain territory they don't normally put themselves on radar applying for a sponsor license at all um at that phase so um yeah normally you would get notice but it can be very short sometimes you mm. don't get much notice Alexi what's your, I think it can so vary. Home, yeah so the home office uh have what they call as an unannounced visits and then they also have announced visits um that every year they have a certain number of uh, businesses that they want to visit as part of their usual process just to make sure that you know the businesses are compliant and then in those circumstances they contact the company in advance and in fact uh, they can offer the company a number of specific dates and uh, basically they can accommodate the business and visit them at the time that is convenient for the company uh, as far as the unannounced visits are concerned. So as Adam mentioned, they usually relate to instances when the Home Office suspects that there could be illegal working going on or that the company um, is likely well, breaching their other um, immigration obligations. So that in those instances, the Home Office may show up on their doorstep unannounced. If that happens, um, it doesn't mean that the audit, the check has to happen on that day. So, for example, if the authorizing officer is not available to answer the Home Office's questions on the day, then they may ask the Home Office to come back uh, at another time. Yes. BC, the, the, the situation would be different if the Home Office strongly suspects that there is illegal working going on, in which case they could just start conducting checks on yeah. uh, on staff on the day. Yeah. But in other circumstances, uh, they're usually quite happy to accommodate the business and rearrange the visit um, if it seems to be reasonable in the circumstances. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, 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 it does all come back again to to those organisation of records, because if you've not got too long before the Home Office comes out, you're really going to want your systems to be up to date, up to scratch, and, and for that authorising officer to be able to call on that um, to answer any compliance questions, particularly um, going back to, to what was said earlier about um, it being a privilege and not a right, and, and, and that evidence of compliance with that duty to prevent illegal working. Well, it sounds like there are a few steps to get the the license um and i guess call me cynical i guess once you've got the art license it's not the end of the process um is there anything alexi that has to happen after you've got the license so once the sponsor license is in place uh there's a separate process that will need to be followed for each migrant worker to secure their skilled worker visa uh, the process will be different depending on whether the worker is switching from another visa within the UK uh, or applying from overseas. But those based outside of the UK, a defined certificate of sponsorship will need to be requested from the Home Office under the company's sponsor licence. Um, and how long, so, does, how long does that take? Does that take um, a long time? 
So these requests are processed within one or two business days in the majority of cases, but they can, uh, the Home Office can request additional information, in which case the process can take considerably longer. Usually when you submit your defined cause request, you must include the details of the role, uh, including the length of sponsorship required and the salary, um, as well as other information. And then with, with, with certain roles, uh, the Home Office tend to conduct additional checks. So depending on the sort code uh, that you have mapped the role to uh, certain sort codes. And sorry, just to, just to cut across basically. you there. Sorry, Alexi, SOC codes. When we're, when we're talking about SOC codes for our listeners, what does that mean? What's that stand for? So those are basically standard occupational codes that are published on the government website. So mm. any particular job type uh, has a brief description uh, on the government website. Mm. And when you have a particular role that you want to sponsor someone for, it need, you need to identify a suitable SOC code. So you just need to match the, your role with the one of the roles published on the government website. And then once you've matched the roles, then uh, you, you, uh, that tells you the minimum salary threshold yeah. and, the, and the hours uh, on which that uh, salary is calculated. So you could determine whether your role qualifies uh, for sponsorship. Uh, right. And then once a defined certificate of sponsorship has been received, then uh, the company the company will need to assign it to their select, uh, selected candidate. And then the candidate must apply for their visa using that certificate of sponsorship within three months. Mm. Um, applying for a visa usually means that the applicant must attend an appointment at a visa application center and submit their passport. Processing times for a skilled worker visa are usually around three three weeks. Uh, but it is often possible to reduce these to about five working days by paying a bit extra for the priority service. Um, EA nationals uh, who have a biometric passport are also eligible to apply um, using a fully digital process, uh, which involves them downloading a home office app to their phone and then verifying their identity using that app. Um, the processing times are the same. Uh, basically whether you apply with an appointment or using the, the app. Um, mm. The advantage of applying, and EA nationals have the option of using either um, of those routes. Um, so if they have a biometric passport, they can decide which one to use. If they don't have a biometric passport, then uh, they, they need to apply in the standard way with an appointment. And the processing times are basically, as I said, the same, whether you apply using the digital, fully digital road or whether you apply with an appointment. The only difference could be the waiting times to get the actual appointment. So if you use the app, then you can verify your identity uh, straight away. And then the application, the, the processing of the application starts from that point. If you need to book an appointment, then um, there could be one or two or three week uh, waiting times before you get your appointment, and then the processing technically starts from the date of the appointment rather than the date uh, on which you book one. So that could delay the processing slightly if there are no appointments available uh, immediately. For in-country applications, the process is uh, slightly different. Um, unlike applicants who are based overseas, uh, migrant workers who are already in the UK 
on other eligible visas will not require a defined certificate of sponsorship. So the sponsoring company will need to use an undefined certificate of sponsorship uh, from their annual allocation of certificates of sponsorship. Each company is given a set number of undefined certificates each year, and the number is usually based on what they used uh, in the in the previous year. So if they signed five undefined certificates of sponsorship in the previous year, uh, the Home Office stands to grant the same number uh, in the following year. And then if the company does not get any because they didn't assign any certificates in the previous year, or if they run out because they need to sponsor more workers this year than they did last year, then they can uh, apply for additional allocation. Um, and that, that, so that request will need to be submitted first before they can assign an undefined certificate of sponsorship to a prospective uh, new hire. And then once a certificate of sponsorship has been assigned, then the applicant will be able to proceed with their visa application. Uh, the majority of skilled worker visa applicants who are already in the UK can currently apply using uh, the digital service uh, that does not require them to attend an appointment. Uh, so they, similarly to out-of-country applications submitted by EEA nationals who can use the Home Office app, uh, skilled workers who are switching employers or are extending uh, their skilled worker visa within the UK and have a biometric residence permit, can use that biometric residence permit to link it with the Home Office app and verify their identity that way. And okay. then if and if for any reason they're not able uh, to use a digital service, for example, because there's a fault with their biometric residence permit, uh, then they need to attend an appointment. Um, the processing times at the moment are well, standard processing times for in-country applications are about eight weeks, uh, but the majority of applicants tend to use the priority service, which offers a decision within around five working days. And also those applying with an appointment can also opt for um, one day super priority service. Yeah, okay. and I think that makes right. Abby just to do a key point around that we talked at the top end about employers looking at and individuals looking at costs and mm. something that's worth looking at early on, particularly if there's a time scale to be met, is what what the options and costs are for priority mm. services, that side of things. And then who's bearing that cost? I mean, it strays us over into employment law rather than immigration law, but if the company is going to bear some organization is going to bear some of that cost, will that be under any sort of clawback arrangement? And that can get slightly more complicated in this context than just a general sort of training contribution towards training because certain of these costs you can't claw back from the individual certain you can but you know there's there's these factors to try and put into the plan as early as possible i think mm. um because then you're preempting the need and you're not finding that cost pops up unexpectedly later on really interesting and, and obviously something that needs to be factored in in terms of the time scale and, and cost um of bringing someone in uh, once you've got that sponsor license, because it, particularly if you're going for some sort of priority entrance, I've just got one final question, if I may, um, and that's that's really a kind of how creative can employers get with these visa routes? Are, what sort of flexibility um, is there uh, in the different types of routes? So, for example, could you, I don't know, have someone working part of the their year in the UK and and part of the year for the same employer abroad? Can they continue to be paid by that non-UK employer? What, to what extent can you, and bearing in mind, you know, the increased 
um, globalization and, and employees wanting to work remotely and, and um, in different locations, can you still can you do that as a sponsor? Maybe Adam, if I come to you first for your thoughts. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the key points. It's one of the key things that we do working with organisations strategically is is about this area of being creative. I, I think my, my broad view and message is don't think too much in sort of narrow confines. Do be creative, and you know we have far too many different visa routes and combinations of routes. Really, it's it is difficult to manage in that sense. But one of the benefits from that is that there are. A multitude of different routes and even within routes there are options so the answer is yes in theory you could have someone working um you know partly in the uk partly abroad yes in theory you could have someone being paid out of a non-uk uh, entity or bank account um there's lots of different flexibility around the, the the system it's just having the ability to sort of take the helicopter view i guess really and mm it's easy to get sucked down the obvious route and then go oh, that doesn't really work or it's too expensive or, or or not attractive for us and miss that there are other angles it's really what Alexi was talking about at the top end of the session really um keeping your keeping your mind open there, there may well be hidden angles that that you can pull on to get that get that outcome mm. yeah absolutely Alexi is there anything is there anything that you can't do you know for example, I'm sure there's plenty of things you can't do um, with, with these visa routes. Are there limits to the flexibility? I mean, I know we touched on earlier about not um, not being able to farm out your workers to different entities. Is, is, that, is that an issue? Yes. Yeah, so the important message is that the role must be genuine. So the sponsor license must not be used to facilitate um, entry to the UK in cases where uh, the business does not actually re require the person uh, for for mm. the for the job in question. So mm. jobs must not be created with a view uh, to sponsoring someone for a visa. But other than that, if there is a genuine need uh, to fill a particular role, then there there are a lot of different options for sponsors. And as Adam mentioned, uh, there are things like payroll being administered outside of the UK and these are typically things that a lot of sponsors don't think are possible and they may not even start exploring um, certain options within the sponsored route because they assume that this is not going to be possible but before uh, so my message to our listeners is that before you make any conclusions it's best to uh, consider each scenario on its own merits and then mm -hmm. chances are that we will be able to find a workable solution mm. that's, that's really interesting thank you and I've, I've definitely learned a lot today about the importance of planning um and not just thinking it's a sponsor license or, or nothing there are loads that you know there's seemingly lots of different and creative approaches to um recruiting candidates from overseas that, that perhaps our listeners haven't haven't thought about today so thank you Adam and Alexi for those really valuable contributions as I said at the start this is um, the first in a three-part series on the globalization of working um, and the next session we'll be running we'll be looking at uh, whether employees should be allowed or encouraged to work abroad or whilst on holiday or whilst they wanted to spend some time outside of the UK for whatever reason, um, should there be any um, limits on that, any policies around that, what are the pros and cons of that for, for the organisation? Um, and then we'll be ending the series with looking at um, 
any issues or considerations with engaging employees to work abroad on a more permanent basis um, and looking at things like payroll and, and tax issues and other legal implications. So do um, follow us on LinkedIn, Apple Music or Spotify uh, to get those updates. Um, but all that remains uh, for me to, to say is thank you again to, to Adam and Alexi and we look forward to welcoming you for part two of the series. <laughs>